been talking on Wednesday nights about the character of God, the nature of God, and uh, things to remember about Him. Not too many years ago, um, there was a, a men's movement that swept the nation. And uh, it was mainly through a group of leaders with the most recognizable person being the former coach of the Colorado Buffaloes, University of Colorado. The last time they had won a national championship was Bill McCartney. And uh, Bill McCartney and uh, Dave Wardell, who uh, um, was involved with Fellowship of Christian Athletes, they traveled to a meeting in Colorado, Pueblo, Colorado. And, and uh, <clears throat> as they were in, in praying and worshiping, uh, Coach McCartney asked his friend, what, what do you feel is the most important factor and changing a man spiritually from immaturity to maturity? And the answer was discipleship. So out of that, promise keepers rose up. And I don't know how many places. I know we went to the Georgia Dome, and uh, we, we drove somewhere where Buddy was the principal driver. Indianapolis. I think Buddy Cromer would not let anybody else drive the van, so we had to take our lives in his hand, I guess. But uh, went to South Carolina, University of South Carolina, and went to Stand in the Gap. Some of us went to that major event. And uh, you wonder, do you wonder how they came up with the term promise keepers? <clears throat> well, Coach McCartney said that before they even had a name, they, uh, they thought about integrity being fundamental to a man's growth spiritually. And so he said the dictionary gave six definitions of integrity, and I'll, these are from his words, utter sincerity, honesty, candor, not artificial, not shallow, no empty promises. And so they came from that term to coin the term promise keepers. No empty promises. It was built around God's promises and man's need to keep those promises, to embrace the promises of God. Moses explains in Genesis, in the early chapters of Genesis, the existence of man, how it came to be, and uh, how man um, multiplied under the watchful eye of our Creator. And not long into uh, man's history, God chose a man to really bring about his purpose. And that man was Abram, later referred to as Abraham. And uh, he called Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. This is what is modern-day Iraq, Babylon, later. And these were, this is where a lot of people feel like black magic, uh, dark magic really came from is that area of Chaldea. So Abram and his wife Sarah actually came out of families who were idol worshipers. <clears throat> In fact, some kind of brought along some of the images that they were used to. Um, I don't know if you... We had to read the, the Good Earth by Pearl S. Buck. Did anybody else have to read that in school? It's, a, it's an interesting book. Uh, part of it was this... Uh, agricultural sense of, of 
praying for the blessings of their crops and little shrines that they would have, and they would go into there. And it kind of like was to me. I mean, I grew up in Harpersville, Alabama, and I couldn't picture that. But it was required reading, so I was reading it. But the, the darkness of that area, God caused him. How, how did Abraham know the voice of God? I just believe that when God spoke to him, he knew who he was. Because he hadn't heard that voice. And he told him to pack up and leave. To pack up his family and leave. Now we know that he took a nephew along with him, um, Lot, and they both were already established with cattle and sheep. So they had a lot of hired help, herdsmen. So they, they just nomadically left Ur and headed up to Haran. And uh, you, you're going to pick this up in Genesis chapter 12 if you brought your Bibles. Or if you have your smartphone or something, Genesis 12. Solo Scriptura became one of the uh, clarion calls during the Reformation. And it means only Scripture. We appeal to the Bible as our rule. And uh, I've been reading a lot about the Reformation. It's very enlightening. But uh, we can never, never get too far from Scripture because it is our source of truth that we, we draw everything that we know, everything that we can really trust is in this book. So I'm going to start reading around verse 4 of chapter 12. So follow along with me if you have it ready. <clears throat> so Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah in Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. He's kind of already in Israel proper now. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built another altar, an altar to the Lord, and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev, the, the uh, desert area. Notice the words in verse 13, or verse 7. It says, to your offspring I will give this land. Now what would you call that? Yeah, inheritance. But what will, when someone says, I will do such and such? Promise. Promise keepers. I'm really talking about God being the promiser. I looked it up and that is a word. Promiser. Promise giver. And how faith can only be genuine if it's connected to a response to his promise. 
You and I cannot exercise faith without a word from the Lord generating the foundation to respond to it. None of us can put faith in in a vacuum, just have faith that's not attached to something. A trust is another word. So he's calling Abram to trust him by calling out. Let me take you through the first three verses of that chapter, and then we're going to go to another chapter shortly after that. These are the first three verses. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Look at the phrases of promise. I will show you where you're to go. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless those who bless you, and I will have your back if people come against you. Those who bring curses against you, I will take care of them. That's really what he is saying. He said, I'm going to have your back for those who bless you. I will bless them, but I also will have your back for those who want to do you harm, who want to speak evil against you. And this is his promise to him. And he says, and you and the, and the whole earth will be blessed through you. And the thing is, how could Abram have done any of this if the Lord had not given him promises? Because he was acting on what God was saying. The very foundation, you go from this country. You go from your, leave your family. Leave. I, I don't know if it was a mistake to carry his nephew with him because he did tell him to leave his family. He probably later said, I shouldn't have brought Lot. Big mistake. You know, this, whether it was a mistake or not, did, did Abraham make mistakes after God called him? Oh, major deal. Lying, uh, telling a couple of monarchs, yeah, she's my sister, you can have her, you know. Uh, Sarah must have looked pretty good to be at her age because he was like, they're going to say, you're cute, and they'll want you, and they'll kill me to get you. So I'll just say, you're my sister, and that way, how about that? I don't think probably she was agreeable to that, but... That's what he, he was made, the Lord called him knowing ahead of time that he would blow it, that he would make big blunders. You see, God's calling on him was not based on Abram's performance. But he knew this about the man. He knew when this man was ready to put trust, he would follow through no matter what. And he called him that way. What, where did he say go? Hmm? <laughs> to a land I will show you. And what he did not say is, <clears throat> pack up, and here's your GPS. It's going to be about 600 miles northeast. You know, if he had said that before, he might have not have been so much acting on faith. Uh, uh, say, what's miles? 
But it, that's how far Haran was from Ur. Now, we kind of jump real quick in these verses because we like, and he was 75 when he left Haran, but he had to leave Ur to get to Haran. That was like 600 miles. If you look up, Haran is right on the border of Turkey and Syria. It's northwest, and it's about the same amount of distance, maybe even further from Haran down to Hebron where he ends up at. But he did not tell him where he was going, did he? He didn't tell him specifically where he was going. Why would that, why would that be different if he told him where he was going? Think about it. And there's no wrong answer, so don't worry about giving a wrong answer. This is speculative. What would, what would make him saying to a land, I will show you, different from him just telling him where to go? Trust him. It would be equivalent to somebody getting in the car with you at the steering wheel and tell you, all right, just go. You know, I had to do that. I had to take somebody to their house Sunday morning because they were dropped off. And the one that dropped them off wasn't answering the phone, so they had to give me directions. Turn here, turn here, go here, go straight here, turn left here. It's down the hills, turn left there. Why would God say, I will show you, make it such a difference in him going? He would be with him. He's like an on-site God. He just didn't say, just, you know, I'll catch up with you somewhere. <laughs> just go that way. He was actually telling him, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be your God. I'm going to show you where you're to go. It did create trust, as someone said. It did, he had to trust God. It, I think maybe Abraham would be able to deal with that better than him just pointing him in a direction to just go. It's going to take you about a month to get there. You know, maybe you're like, oh, man, a month? But... uh I want to take you down to uh, chapter 15 here in just a moment. But it's about a promise. He was promising, I will show you where it is. Go eight. I want you to see this map. I want to show you. I meant to show, give him to pull this up earlier. All right, this is Abraham's journey. Ur is way down here along the Euphrates River in modern-day Iraq. And look at the route. It's almost like a reversal of people coming from Egypt, right? Because they go and they go south and then they go up. It's like God must like to test people to see their resolve. So he takes them way up, 600 miles, and probably more than that coming back down. Who's doing that? That's good. Look at y'all. The balcony is in vogue here. But uh, he, he was, this is the journey. Now, when they left Haran, they had accumulated a lot more up the, while they were up there. We don't know how long they were there, but we do know it said that he was 75 when they left there. So he had to be younger than that when they left his, all their family. So they're on this journey. 
He said, I will show you, which meant I will be with you. Let me take you to chapter, uh, let me take you first of all to chapter 13, and then we'll get to chapter 15. Look in verse 14, if, you, if you've got Genesis open. Because, uh, you know, they, they uh, Lot and Abraham, their, their employees had contention, and, and so they had to separate. They had to separate their businesses. They got too big, and they had conflicts. So he says, you know, we need to separate our herds, and our herdsmen are having problems and conflicts. There's not enough grazing ground. There's all kinds of stuff, but this is because they were accumulating some wealth. So even though the story of Lot choosing to go to the cities, it looked better down there. It was lush plains and great grazing land, and Abram took the worst land. But this picks up after all of this happens, and it's almost as though God knew this was going to, that at some point Abraham was going to be separated from Lot. And God wanted to deal with Abraham. God's promise was to Abraham. It wasn't to Lot. It was to Abraham and Sarah. Now watch verse 14 in Genesis 13. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around where you are, to the north and south, to the east and west. All the land that you see, I will give to you. There's another promise. I will give you what you see. Everywhere you look, to the north, east, west. And then he says in verse 16, I will make your offspring. Here's another promise. The I wills all through this. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Pretty good promise being that they didn't have any children. He said, go walk the length. This is the Lord telling Abram what to do. Walk the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. By the way, Hebron is still a highly contested place. More, more Arabs live there than Jews, but this is a, this is a town that's fought over because of the sacredness of its connection to Judaism and is Islam. And it's interesting that that's where Abraham landed. Again, the relationship that God has established with Abraham is not based on Abraham, is it? It's based on his promises to Abraham. And you say, well, Abraham, Abraham has to respond. Yes, he does. But he's, God knew what Abraham was going to do long before he did it, and some of it was not good. Some things he did well, some things he did not do well. Yet God knew all of that, and he still promised him all of this. I want to take you to chapter 15. And um, what a, this is one of the great chapters about how God establishes an unconditional covenant. You've probably read this before, but I want, you, I want to take you through it. This is chapter 15 when God is making an unconditional covenant. What is, what is an unconditional covenant? It's not based on two parties. It's based on one party. There's only... Now, this was laid out in the custom of that day as to how people came to a lasting agreement, a covenant. They would sacrifice... An animal. They would split the animal in half. They would lay half on one side, half on the other side. 
and then they would walk between it. It showed the seriousness of that covenant that an animal was sacrificed to invoke their oaths, their vows. And listen, listen how all this unfolds. It's, it's all about God's promises to Abram. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of, of Damascus. This was a servant. This was a head. This kind of like the foreman of his employees. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord, again, you cannot have faith without a word from God. The word of the Lord generates the capacity for us to have faith. And the word of the Lord came to him and says, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He's challenging what Abram says. This is the fact. He says, but I'm talking to you about a promise, not what you see right now. So he took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. What does that make you think of when you see him doing that? It's, it's back in 13 when he says, can you count the dust? Can you count dust particles? If you can, people can count your offspring. He says, look at the stars. He's talking about how many they will be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. He repeated his plan, his overall plan. And Abram said, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? And this is the Lord's answer to that question. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them into, arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abraham drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years He's telling ahead of time what's going to happen to Israel for 400 years. And I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot, with a blazing torch, appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. This is the covenant. This is the description of the covenant. On that day, he made a covenant with Abraham, Abram and said, To your descendants, I will give this land, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenesites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, like Perizzites, Perizzites, you had to say the Z there, Zites. The Raphites, Raphatites, Amorites, Canaanites, Gergesites, Jebusites. Jebusites were a little difficult people to move out 
But he said, I'm, I'm going to give you everywhere they are at. And if you really look at the promise that God gave him, it's from the Euphrates over to the Mediterranean. They've never, never occupied that. That will be a problem. Because <laughs> that's where Jordan and Syria and Iraq and Lebanon are at. So that will be a problem when that happens. That might give you the idea of why Revelation has a lot of dramatic things happening. Because God's going to feel that promise. There's not a promise of God that will never, ever go unfulfilled. What he said that day will be fulfilled. Now I want to take you over to Romans 4. And I've marked up this chapter so much in my Bible. Because the verse that says, And Abraham believed, and God counted it unto him as righteousness, is referenced by Paul in his letter to the believers at Rome. And it's all about how Abram responded to the promise of God and how we as the people of God, we may say we believe some things, but it's whether or not we really trust that. We can say words, but if we listen to the author of the word of God and we listen to his and we see his character, we can put trust in that, can't we? That God speaks truth to us, and we can trust it whether we see it or not. We can trust his truth. I don't know what else to do but just take you through this chapter, and I hope you got your Bible with you or something that you can make some notes on. And this is how he starts. He starts with a question. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Here it is. This is Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. He pulls out a statement from that covenant scene where God is establishing a lasting covenant. Abraham didn't walk through the pieces. He did not, he did not participate in that. For God was saying, none of this rests on you. All of this rests on me. I will make this happen. Whether you're going to be good at times or bad at times, faithful at times or failing at times, aren't you glad that God doesn't determine how he's going to treat us based on our performance? Because he draws connection to all of this and Jesus in just a moment. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift because he, of course, earns them. It's an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteous. The righteousness that God gave Abram, he says, is given to you and me if we just trust God's word, he will credit that as righteousness to us. David says the same thing. He pulls out something from Psalm 32. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness. What is a, what is a man like that God credits righteousness? What is one of the, the defining qualities of that person? He gives it right here. 
Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. He's talking about forgiveness. The person who discovers forgiveness. If you you have a performance-based desire for approval, it's going to be so frustrating because you're always going to be striving for God to say he likes you. And he says ahead of time, if you just believe that I've forgiven you, that's righteousness to you. Because what, what are you doing? You're believing his promise to forgive you, not your capacity to do it. Or stop doing it. Right? It's pretty good. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised? He's going to cover some bases here. Or also for the uncircumcised. We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Well, did he have any reason beyond just believing? He's about to touch on that. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after He was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He didn't have the Ten Commandments. He didn't have the law. He didn't have a rule book. He didn't have a manual. He didn't have anything in front of him telling him what to do. He just heard the voice of God and responded, and God said, you're righteous. Not a checklist. I prayed this, I said this, I confessed this. He just believed God. And he's about to kind of connect us to all of this. So then he is the father of us all who believe and have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he's also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith, the same faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, no external things that we do or that we want to impress people to the point that they think we do is what gives you favor with God. It's being just as passionate for Him when no one's watching as when anyone's watching. And that is where we need to like, God, God knows it anyway. <laughs> it's like when I'm, I used to meet people, and smoking is not my thing. I just, I just never like being around smoke, but uh, I've seen people almost set their clothes on fire when I see them somewhere. And it's like, you don't have to do that. You're going to set your shirt on fire. It's kind of like, I'm not your judge. Right? If you're comfortable doing something away from me, that I'm not, I'm not the one that you need to be worried about. Right? But I don't know. Maybe it's like, well, there's the pastor. Oh, you can't see me doing this. Oh, God knows what we all do. How we lose our cool, what we say, everything. So why should we pretend that we don't mess up? Here's the man of faith, the great man of faith. Abram, messing up. Did God say, you know what? I, had, I thought better of you than that. Deal's off. The deal's off. 
You're not getting the land, and I'm not giving you any kids. He could have withdrawn. He, it was an unconditional covenant. He could have, he could have said, no, we're just going to do away with that. But he's really using Abraham to speak to us that how he got to where he was at, it was all because of God's word to him. Now watch this. In verse 13, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Boy, that's a powerful statement. It wasn't even his faith. It was the righteousness that infiltrated that man's life. You see, God just didn't speak something over him. He imputed righteousness into his soul, and it was the righteousness of God that was causing Abraham to say, I want to be faithful. I want to be your man. But if those who live by the law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless. What a, a scary statement. If you're trying to get there through effort, it's not only... Your effort's not going to have value, but you're making the promise of God worthless. You're cheapening the promise of God. If he's told you something and we toy with it and we're not sure about it, what is, what is that saying about what he said to us? He's, he's warning us about this. Because law brings wrath and where there's no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. And in he's writing this, he's writing to a mixed congregation of Gentiles and Jews. So he says, Abraham is the father of all of us who are walking by faith, whether you're biologically connected to Abraham are spiritually connected, you're as much his child as those who are biologically connected. Abraham is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. It's kind of like the little song. Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Abraham. Don't you like that? The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. There's so many powerful statements here. Against all hope, and this is where I'm going to finish up here. You're doing really well just hanging in here with me. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed. Looking at a terrible situation. And he explains it later. You know, I'm a hundred, and Ma over there is almost as old as I am, and we hadn't had a kid yet. All against all hope, Abraham believed in hope. He became the father of many nations. So shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact. He faced. It wasn't because he was in denial. I'm not a hundred years of age. I'm I'm 25. I, I can father children. It wasn't him looking in the mirror and says, come on, you're not that old. The wrinkles are not real. You know, your hair is not gray. He's not, not building himself up. He knew the fact of how old he was. He wasn't in denial. He, he did not accept that. 
that the body, his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. You might want to incorporate some worship when you're stepping out on faith and giving glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. There's a lot of good words that start with a P there. Promise, power, persuasion is coming up. Persuaded that God had power to do what he promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Watch this. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone. For you. This word was written for you. Tonight, this word's for you. What are you facing that the facts of what you're facing is telling you there's no way out? Don't think that's going to work. That's where we need to go back to any promise God has given us about that. And we stake our claim on that. Not on what we see. And he says, Abraham was fully aware of how old he was and how old his wife was. And and yet, he just believed that God was going to do it. He believed that God had the power to override his age and the age of his wife. His deadness of reproduction and her deadness of reproduction. God could override their deadness and bring life through them. It's not for them only. Verse 24, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness for us, that God will credit righteousness to us, who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Isn't it interesting that both, there was both, on these both sides of this, there was death. There was a death of reproductive ability in Abraham and his wife. And God, out of that death, brought life. And he kind of brings that in that if we believe that Jesus was dead and then was raised from the dead, he credits that as righteousness to us. Who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins. And boy, this is where Watch Monique really kind of parses this stuff so good. He was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. If we are not careful... If we're not careful, one of the things that Martin Luther came to just abhor was the notion that people could do something to merit their salvation. That's why he didn't think the book of James should be in the canon of Scripture. Because like he's talking about, you know, show me your faith, I'll show you my faith by my works. And he says, ah, that can't be of God. He just, he just had this revelation that it's all by faith. It's all by faith. There's no, and the works is not, is not a causation to salvation. It's the result of salvation. I was telling one of the waitresses, and, and I had a chance to witness to a lady sitting in a wheelchair, and I just was able to tell her that, that Jesus died for her sins. Jesus died for her sins. I told a waitress that just recently 
that the church didn't die for you. Because when I asked her about where she stood with the Lord, she said, well, I haven't been in church. I said, I'm not asking about church because the church didn't die for you. The church is the result of salvation. It's the result of Jesus dying on the cross. Until we have that encounter with the one who died on the cross and was raised from the dead, we're, we're just religious. I, and, and I don't know. I, w- I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to come and sit here and sing songs that, that don't relate to me, that don't, don't express something about where I'm at. I'd rather sit at home, but I love coming and singing and worshiping and singing songs like, yeah, he did that for me. He did that for us. He's made us alive, and he says, you're mine now. You don't belong to anybody else. You're mine. You belong to me. There's a place at my table for you. I don't call you servant. I call you son and daughter. And I just believe that God is wanting all of us to get out of our our little cubicle of existence and take one of those hope beyond brokenness and give it to someone. Just find someone who you feel like that God just speaks to you. You know, I'm I'm anxious for Brenda to come back from Colorado because I don't like being by myself at all. I hate being at my at the house by myself. But I am throwing a lot of stuff away. And so don't can you stop the recorder? Did you? I am. I'm throwing I'm purging our house to some degree. So hallelujah. That is cathartic for me. But I I just want to we was going to an airport in Atlanta, and we stopped at a Waffle House, which has the best price for a meal, $5, and you get your drink with it. It's just great. And this little waitress, and I said, I think we got a book, Hope Beyond Brokenness. I think it was somewhere in Oxford. No, it was in Georgia. We've ate at so many Waffle Houses. We ought to, we ought to buy some kind of stock in that company. But this lady was a believer, but there was people that weren't there that I gave her the book so that she could be a source of contact to her employees. They would probably respond to her giving that book and saying, you need to read this. Then they might, if I just gave it to them, they don't know me. And we just told about the, the background of that book, that that book came from people in our church that it went through horrific things and and at the end of the story, it's God. It's God walking through pieces of animals and giving you a covenant that he is, he's got your back. And he's got his hand on you. And nothing you face will ever cause him to abandon you. That is not a great promise. Praise God. Stand with me. Well, I really want to preach twice as long to make up for not preaching Sunday. But uh, by the way, next week, Kayla is going to be sharing about mental illness and Christianity because she's a health professional in that area. And I think it's just she, she had expressed a desire to give that background to how do, how do we help people that find themselves with depression and things like that and uh, just believe it's, it's just God's timing. And uh, so next week, 
if, if you've had family members or you battle spurts of depression or anxiety and things like this, you know, it's more common to people in the church than what we want to admit because we don't want to admit that we have some bad low places. But we all at some point have low places. We're mortals. We're, we're not immortal. We, we, we long for the day we will be immortal. But because we are human beings, we have struggles and things can pile in on top of you and it can get you down. So I really believe that God's given her a good word 